Labrea. Hey, Labrea fans, this is Pete Phillips, and I am back for episode two of my rewatch of season one of Labrea. So far, I think we have five listeners tops, definitely. And uh, we will proceed with working through the season, but also talking about La Brea in the news, um, as well as this episode spotlighting a character that uh, I think is the most rational. We don't really have a lot of things to get into for that particular character, but uh, we will spotlight a character, try to do that each week as well. But for now, let's get into the action. Episode Recap we start episode two picking up with the saber-toothed tiger attack. It must be terrifying facing a giant tiger with big old teeth. In fact, the only thing scarier is exactly what happens, facing two giant tigers with big old teeth. One runs after our heroes. In this case, that would be Eve, Ty, and Sam. And honestly, our heroes don't stand a chance. These are big, agile cats. But don't forget, Ty still has a gun. Remember, last episode, he was trying to kill himself when he met Eve. So, he shoots a tiger, and it blows back and dies. For those looking for goofs, a small, saber-toothed tiger would probably weigh about 500 pounds, and a handgun would not blow the tiger back. It probably would have landed on Ty and killed him on impact. But luckily, it didn't. So, Ty, Eve, and Sam figure that it's better to hide from the other tiger. Okay, I'm just going to say it. That was a saber-toothed tiger, right? Those things are extinct. You still think we're in Los Angeles, Eve? But in case you forget from the last episode, the whole reason they ventured out is to get that medical supplies for Eve's son, Josh. The longer they hide, the sicker Josh gets. So Eve pushes them to move, which gets Sam thrown off of a cliff by the other tiger, You'd just have to see it. Eventually, Eve and Ty luck out, and the tiger falls into a hole that has spikes in it and dies. But you know what? It's a man-made hole. A hunting trap. But then, who made it? Back at the camp of survivors of people who fell through the hole, uh, there is a sort of community forming. However, Josh is in a bus, whining like crazy. And I don't have a problem with it, but it is really annoying because the actor has to portray a lot of pain of infection. And um, I, I, there's only so many things you can do, I suppose. But it can get pretty grating, which is probably why I find Josh so annoying. Meanwhile, on the surface, we meet Dr. Shen through a TV where he's on the news talking about the prehistoric birds and how they can't know how old they are or where they came from. Personally, I'm worried about the birds and what they'll do in modern times. But no one seems terribly concerned about that. I know that someone's little dog is getting swooped off of a sidewalk and eaten by a prehistoric bird. But anyway, Gavin gets this idea to sneak up on Dr. Shen at the college that he teaches at and give him Eve's ring. Gavin tells Shen that his wife and son are in the past, just like the birds are. Well, just like where the birds came from, and if Shen can carbon date the ring, then it's proof. Lots of contaminated variables in that experiment, Dr. Shen, but he says he'll do it anyway. In case you're not familiar, carbon dating can be explained by radiocarbon.com. Radiocarbon dating is a method that proves objective 
age estimates for carbon-based materials that originated from living organisms. An age could be estimated by measuring the amount of carbon-14 present in a sample and comparing it against an internationally used reference standard. In 2020, radiocarbon dating got a major update. For the first time in seven years, the technique was recalibrated using a slew of new data from around the world. The result means that many finds, such as Siberia's oldest modern human fossils, are actually a thousand years younger than previously thought based on these changes in calibration. For our heroes, what's another thousand years? The major takeaway for me is that on average, carbon dating can cost anywhere between $125 to $450, and the fastest result could happen in one to three days. But Dr. Shen is not your average man. He says he'll have it done by the afternoon. Back in the hole, Ty and Eve decide that they have to find Sam because, well, yeah, he's a doctor. Yeah, he's a friend. But mostly because he has the bag with all the antibiotics for Josh. And they do find him, but his back is... I think it's sore. I can't really tell. He can barely walk, and he's in pain. But later in the episode, he just says he needs to rest. And then it'll go away. So, yes, I dropped a little spoiler. He survives this episode. Eve has to decide if she should leave Sam with Ty and run the antibiotics back to the camp to help Josh, or try to help Sam back with Ty. It feels like a classic moral dilemma. In 2020, a group from Boston College and Harvard University found that current work suggests that people who are impartially pro-social may be evaluated as less moral and less trustworthy precisely because they are perceived as not fulfilling and perhaps not believing that they have special obligations. Basically, pro-social behavior doesn't give you something back, but it could take something away. If you're giving to a stranger and being pro-social, then you're taking from your friends or family. By staying with Sam, Eve is risking Josh's life. By running to Josh, she's leaving Sam's life in danger because he's injured in the wild. So what should Eve do? This is from a study called What We Owe the Family, The Impact of Special Obligations on Moral Judgment, which was published by the Association for Psychological Science. Lucky for Eve, Sam basically demands that she go to Josh because the infection is likely spreading. And it is, but I'm expecting Sam's daughter to be a little pissed off when Eve comes back without Sam. If you're tired of the Harris family drama, as I most certainly am by now, we have more fun things to consider as we meet more characters in depth. Scott is our drug guru. He likes marijuana. Despite being a museum intern in grad school, he's walking around um, inside the hole, kind of trying to get a signal on his cell phone in this episode. And he doesn't get one, which is not surprising to me or anybody else, I think, who is in the hole, including Mary Beth. We find out that Mary Beth, the lady who was hoarding protein bars in the previous episode, is from Louisiana. Is it strange that that's another L.A.? In Louisiana, she's a cop. She won't reveal why she was in L.A., but she's running around trying different cars to see if she can charge her phone in them. People seem really into the phones. On the way, she finds a Mustang, the one that, in the last episode, Scott and Riley found a trunk full of heroin. We also meet Lily and Veronica a little bit more. Their father died in the last episode when a wolf got him. So Veronica is trying to bury her father in this episode. And she also tells people that Lily, her little sister, doesn't speak. So she can't answer any questions that anybody has about who they are or where they came from. 
little suspicious. Eventually, she ends up paired with Scott, trying to find where the wolves dragged her dad off to. He offers her some weed to take the edge off, but she says that drugs are a sin, which makes us think that she must be weird, right? People who call things sins are weird. <laughs> Tony and Billy are also hanging out at the camp. Billy loses his glasses, so he can't see anything, and Tony's trying to keep himself occupied so he doesn't stress out. They end up watching Lily while Veronica's away because Mary Beth, who is tasked with watching her, is on the hunt for a particular survivor, and she doesn't want to wait for Veronica to come back anymore. So these two guys give Lily a phone, and they tell her to watch downloaded YouTube videos. And again, I suspect that Weird Sin Girl won't like that. On the surface, Gavin is basically being watched by the government. He is seeing visions, Dr. Shenton tells him that someone stole the ring, and his sister is also present. I'm sort of unsure about the role of the sister, because she's played by Ione Skye, who was the love interest in Say Anything, among other 80s roles. I feel like she should have a larger part here, but the sister doesn't have a larger part in the story. She just watches Zoe while Gavin gets taken away by the Department for Homeland Security. And then, as I predicted, Riley, Sam's daughter, is so emo when Eve returns without her dad. But Josh is getting better, and through good storytelling, we're going to check in with Sam, where Ty is basically trying to drag him back to the camp, but he's getting tired. Sam, who's a Navy SEAL and a doctor, accuses Ty of being sick because he's struggling to carry a full-grown man across unfamiliar terrain. That's rude, I say, and Ty denies it. Then suddenly, a mysterious man shows up. It's the guy that Mary Beth has been searching for. It seems like the show tried to make his appearance look mysterious, but really he's just the second person that they needed so that Ty can get Sam the rest of the way to the camp. It turns out his name is Lucas, and he is Mary Beth's son. While hunting for the dead dad's body, Scott saw eight camels, and he saved them from walking into a tar pit. Coincidentally, he remembers eight camels being recovered from the tar pits recently, and they were dated back to 10,000 BC. Veronica finds her dad's body in a sort of weird configuration of rocks. He's surrounded by them. The camera pulls up to show us that he's in the palm of the hand symbol, the one from the last episode. So she buries his body, and that part of the story is essentially done. To wrap things up on the surface, the Department of Homeland Security is who stole the ring, and they dated it back to 10,000 BC. They have a plane that can also fly into big holes in the Earth, because this isn't the first hole. What does the date October 26, 2018 mean to you? It's the date of my plane crash, the day the vision started. 20 miles from where you crashed, another sinkhole opened in the Mojave Desert. We found something there. Something we've never seen before. What the hell is that? That light is at the bottom of the La Brea sinkhole. It's the same light we discovered in the Mojave. I believe there's a world beyond it. And somehow you might be the only one who can see it. That's why they built a whole plane. And they want Gavin to help them get to the other side. For those of you who are unsure, the Mojave Desert is the smallest part of the North American desert, spreading over... Nevada, Eastern Canada, and Western Arizona and Utah. We're looking at about 50,000 square miles of land. The southwest and central east portions of the Mojave Desert are particularly threatened as a result of off-road vehicles, human development, and agricultural grazing. But the World Wildlife Fund, 
lists the Mojave Desert as relatively stable and intact. The Mojave Desert is bordered by the San Andreas Fault to the southwest and the Garlock Fault to the north, so it's pretty familiar with big holes in the ground. Oh, and one more thing before we hit the credits. Lily speaks at the end of the episode. So I guess lying isn't a sin, huh, Veronica? As I watch this episode, I see a lot of people making pretty irrational decisions. And I know that that's required to sort of move a story along sometimes, especially one that's mysterious and sci-fi-ish like this. But I can't help giving Ty the most rational character award. And I am conflicted giving it to him because the first time we meet him, he's trying to shoot himself in the head. But somehow, he is the most stable, non-emotional character that we have. He's making good decisions, he's helping strangers, he's shooting threats, and for all the work that he did to help Josh, it's not even like they're buddies. So far, he's my favorite character who isn't my favorite character because of something that he's doing absurdly wrong. Here's a bit from Chike Akonkwo, who portrays Ty. Playing Ty has been a real journey because when we find him at the beginning of La Brea, he's going through this very intense experience. Not only has he obviously fallen into a sinkhole, but in his own life, he's had some very, very intense things happen to him before we, before we meet him. And so I've learned a lot from Ty. I think the main things that I've learned are compassion. He's a very compassionate guy. Being a psychiatrist, he's used to not judging people. He's used to taking people as they are um, and is always there with a, a helpful word or a hand on the shoulder. Um, I've learned the importance of, of purpose. Ty is someone who feels when we meet him that his purpose has been taken away from him. And so it's nice to go on this journey with him as a character to see how, Im how important purpose is and how he finds a new purpose um, in this new world. The final thing about Ty that I've really, really learned and, and loved going on the journey with is how non-judgmental he is. He, he takes everything as it comes. He really tries to be a voice of reason and a voice of um, compassion, like I said, in, in, in this new world. And he's always looking for solutions, which is really inspiring to me personally. I think that we're supposed to feel connected to one of the Harrises, but they're all just too much. I think Ty also sees this, so he takes time to help Eve with her situation. So I'm glad he didn't kill himself, and I hope he hangs in for a while. For me, he seems like a grounding force. Aside from him, I feel most connected to Tony and Billy because they're also not too dramatic, and they're helping out from the sidelines. What just happened? So, did we answer any questions from last episode? Kind of. The episode does feature a nice, tidy pile of building rubble, which I believe represents the fallen skyscrapers that fell through the hole. If you'll remember last episode of the podcast, that was one of my questions. So I'll let that go, even though it's not nearly enough rubble to make up a skyscraper. But listeners, we are making progress. We already have one answer to one of our questions from the first episode, so we are really doing great. Another question that we had last episode was, did they fall back through time? Right now, we say yes, 10,000 BC. Now, I'm not a genius, but that's 12,000 years ago, right? But something tells me that there's more to it than accidental time travel. We also asked, what was the handprint on the rock all about? 
We still don't know, but we do know that it also has a rock formation that someone had to have made. So, were there other people there before them? Scarier, are there people with them now? And we also asked, does the military have any idea what's going on? The answer to that is clearly yes. And they presumably have a plan to address what's going on as well. But based on the disaster genre, I think it probably won't work. So we have some new questions. The biggest one is, what? There was another hole? What the hell, government? You knew about this kind of crap? And you spent my tax money on building a weird plane that's specifically designed just in case something like this happens again? The wedding ring lost in the hole appeared in present day. Does that mean that the camels that Scott saved didn't appear in the present day? That's something I don't expect anyone to answer because it might tell us too much about what's going on and maybe lock up the writers a little bit about what's happening. But I specifically was wondering that because now we know that you can add things in the past and they show up in the present. Can you save things that showed up in the present from the past? Josh also survived his wolf attack. By the end of this episode, we find out that Josh survives his wolf attack. Does this mean he's going to be healthy and more annoying next episode? I say probably yes, especially since he has the hots for Riley. 10,000 BC is no time for teen romance, Josh. Oh, come on! I'm going to also add to the questions, why is Gavin having visions? Given my acceptance of bad movie tropes, this never has to be addressed for me to keep buying it. But it's also going to drive the show to some degree, I'm sure. Most of all, for me personally, what is up with Veronica and Lily? They're secretive, and when Lily speaks at the end of the episode, she tells Veronica, I didn't tell them anything. Anything about what, kid? You might also wonder what was up with the dedication at the end of this episode. It was dedicated to Deirdre and Leela Naughton. Deirdre was an Australian stunt woman who worked on movies like Nick Cage's Knowing, the 2018 cult favorite Upgrade, and the beautifully absurd I, Frankenstein. In July of 2021, she died in a home fire with her 10-year-old daughter, Leela. From the Daily Mail, Ms. Naughton's former agent, Vicky Mars, from Action Stunts Australia, described the mother as, quote, a shining star who was loved by everyone. She could make you laugh even if you didn't want to, she said in a statement to Daily Mail Australia. Dee was a champion for the female stunt performer and was passionate about women in the stunt industry having a voice. In later years, when she had Leela, her family became her world. She was a devoted mother and partner. And just in case you didn't know, La Brea shoots in Australia. And Australia is a nice transition for us to get to our La Brea in the News segment. La Brea is filming season two in Australia right now, and they made headlines in The Hollywood Reporter that make NBC Universal look really progressive and good. In the media reviews. Though Hollywood has made big sustainable changes in recent years, clean energy has remained the biggest problem. With battery generators previously not having been powerful enough to replace diesel and fuel entire sets. These new batteries, though, take approximately two hours of diesel running time and fully charge up. And in La Brea's case, power 30 working trucks at a unit base, including convection ovens, air conditioners, tumble dryers, water heaters, and water pumps for up to 24 hours. The alternative would be to run the diesel power generators for that entire duration. Two battery units of 90 volt amps are set up on trucks, which are charged by a diesel engine. The battery and the diesel unit talk wirelessly to one another, 
with the engine kicking in to charge the battery once it gets to 10%. According to NBC Universal, over 12 weeks of production, the hybrid system has saved thousands of liters of fuel per month, which translates to significantly reduced carbon dioxide emissions. On the TV side, one-hour scripted dramas had an average carbon footprint of 77 metric tons per episode, and half-hour scripted single-camera shows had 26 metric tons per episode. For reference, the University of Michigan reported in 2021 that a typical U.S. household has a carbon footprint of 48 metric tons per year. And that wraps up this week's episode of the La Brea Purveya. I have been your purveyor, Pete Phillips, and I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you have, feel free to comment or something like that. And feel free to listen to the sort of parent podcast of this, which is called Y'all Heard. You can find information about that at yallheard.me. And if you are listening to this through our Patreon right now, thank you very much. We appreciate it. If you'd like to contribute to the show in any way, you can email us at shout at yallheard.me. <laughs>